John 21, verses 20 through 25. We've now come to the conclusion of the gospel that was given to John to give to us. This is the last section of the last chapter of the last of the gospels that were given by God to his slaves, through his slaves. And this gospel didn't begin with a family genealogy proving that Jesus was the Messiah because he fulfilled the prophecies that required the Messiah to be born of the line of Abraham, of the family of David. And this gospel did not begin with the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the herald of this coming king, nor did it begin with the events surrounding the immaculate conception of this king. This gospel, it began in the beginning. John took us to pre-creation when this king, this Messiah, along with his father and his spirit, began this all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Think of this. Everything that was ever made was created in the mind of Christ. It came into the existence at the verbal command of Christ, and it remains simply because the will of Christ. And into this world, into this realm, into this reality, God stepped down. God became a man, verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But when God stepped down into this reality, into our realm, he didn't do so in the likeness of a Greek God. He didn't become what we would deem an exceptional man, a man of exceptional size and build like Dwayne Johnson or even King Saul. He was average, average looking, average build, and he chose to be born into an average home, not a rich palace, not to rich parents, but to those that he would spend his entire life with, the working class, the huddled masses. And it was concerning this man that John, the revelator, John the apostle, proclaimed that he had seen something special, not just promise or exceptional skills or even an extraordinary ability to love. In this ordinary man, John saw glory. And his glory wasn't bound up in this realm or in the things of this realm. His glory was of the only Son from the Father. And he was, is, full of grace and truth. And his grace, his truth was this. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 4. Again, think of this. To those that were living, he came with life. The life that Jesus came with was and is different than this thing that we call life. It's similar to this life, but just as everything in this life has been tainted and corrupted, been fouled by sin, so too has this life that we live. And the life that Jesus has within him was different, is different because it is pure. It's different. It's as different as light is from darkness. This life that we see around us, this life is darkness. And his life is light. And his life, his light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, cannot overcome it. And into this darkness he came. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verses 9 through 13. And from the very beginning of his life and, his, and this gospel, we are given the contradictions of this life. 
He was in the world. The world was created by him, and yet the world did not know him. In him was life, and he walked in what we call life. And he, God, walked among his created image bearers, and they didn't know him. They had separated themselves so completely, so thoroughly by their sin, they couldn't even recognize in any way or any extent the one that they were created in the image of. And into this darkness, into this world, into this life he came. And he came for a specific reason. And that reason is told to us in chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. He came, he lived, he gave to make God known. And he did that through the ministry of reconciliation that was his life in this life. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Christ is an enigma. He is a contradiction in terms. The world did not receive him, but to those who do, life in Christ. The life that was and is Christ is a contradiction of terms. He lived, and yet he was born. He is light in darkness. He is life to those that live, and he is known but to those who, I'm sorry, he is not known, but those who do know him, to those who do believe, he gives life. And he gives them the right, the power, the ability, and the passport to enter into the heavenly courts of his Father. Not as a temporary visitor, not on a temporary work visa. We need to stop and think this through. God created us perfect in his image, and we sold ourselves to Satan through our treason against God. This is who we are at our core, who every person that has ever lived is. That sweet old lady, that little baby in the carriage, that three-year-old toddler, they're all spawn of the devil, of the family of Satan. We have thumbed our noses to God, declared ourselves God. And yet this God stepped down out of a perfect heaven into our cesspool of sin and lived a perfect life to be able to pay the perfect ransom price for those the Father had given to him, to those that he gives life, to those that are the, uh, of that mass that do receive him, to those that have polluted themselves to that point that they don't even recognize the one in whose image they have been created in, to them, he gives full access the, the right to become children of God. Think of this. And we desire to argue over human agency. If man has the ability to choose this God or not, if we have the authority to neglect such a great a salvation as this, the only ones that can neglect this great salvation are those that are not of the elect, who have not had their hearts regenerated, that this salvation was not really ever for in the first place. Oh, but there are some. And to those living, breathing people, he allows them to be born, not in the tainted natural sense of being born, but in the pure, holy sense of being born, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. We have, in a sense, our own immaculate conception through the empowering of the Holy Spirit who regenerates our dead, lifeless hearts, gives us eyes, spiritual eyes of faith who then can see, who then believe, who are then truly born again. And this is the message of this gospel. This is the message of all the Gospels. This is the meaning, the purpose, and the reason for the entirety of this Bible. That we can know God, the only God. 
that this God who stepped down into his creation is made known through the ministry of reconciliation. This is the purpose of this gospel. And in fact, it's the real purpose of the reality that God has created and allows us to live in. All of us, even those that don't know him, that will not know him because they hate him, even to those he gives life. And more often than not, the amazing thing is, those that hate God, to those he seems to give lives that are filled with happiness, love, and comfort. But he hasn't given them real life. And this gospel, this Bible, was not written for or to them. It is written to and for those who he has given life, eternal, godly life to. In order that we can know him. That we can know ourselves and be able to determine how then we should live. Since he has given us his life, his light, his spirit, and his holiness. And this is why he, through the Apostle John, ended this gospel the way that he did. We've been taken on an adventure with the disciples in this gospel. Have been with them as they sat in wonder and watched this man that they knew was God as he turned water into wine. As he fed the thousands out of almost nothing. As he healed and raised from the dead people who were still walking among them. And to these men... They have been given the right to be called the children of God, just as we have. And through this gospel, we are given the tools to know exactly what this life is like and what it means to be called a child of God, how we are to act and what we are to do and how then we are to live. We are meant to find ourselves in the disciples. Have you ever wondered why he chose men who were so different from each other? Fishermen, tax collectors, men that came from wealth, men who came from very little, men who had all kinds of different personalities and character traits. Basically, the disciples are an accurate and complete cross-section of all humanity. We can find ourselves in one of them. And as much as this gospel is for God, through God, and for God, it is also for us because we are of God. We have been born because of him both times. And he has given us his gospels in order that we can understand what his ministry of reconciliation really means, what it looks like, what it feels like, how we are to do it, and more importantly, how we are able to do it. Think. God wrote these gospels specifically for those that he has called, specifically for us, in order that we can know him, in order that we can understand this life, in order that we can be sanctified more into the image of his perfect son. And he chose to end this gospel, the one that began with such great and amazing imagery of who he is, that the early church spent more time dwelling on the first 18 verses of this book than all others. <clears throat> this gospel that shows us the uniqueness of Jesus to Christ more than any other. He chose to end this gospel telling us of a fishing expedition by some of the disciples. He chose to end this gospel by telling us of a conversation that he had with one of them as they walked on the beach. This is how he chooses to end, chose to end this gospel. And chapter 21 is all about doing, us doing the ministry of reconciliation. All about us finding ourselves in these disciples, learning from them, and finding out what made these men so special. Where their power and ability and moral fortitude actually came from. This has been the meaning behind that fishing expedition that we've been taken on. The one that Peter led into the dead of night that was all for naught until Jesus came again and entered on the scene and did what only Jesus could do. He commanded the natural to do the unnatural. He commanded the fish and they obeyed. And then we're given access into the relational aspect of this one that was dead but is now alive. 
who has taught these men about God, demonstrated to them the ministry of reconciliation, and has shown them God. Men whom he loved, not in a common way, but he loved these men as his brothers. Men who he had made brothers, and men who he expects that they will live as his brothers. And the first thing that we learn from this account of John chapter 21 is that he commands his brothers. And they obey. He commanded them to cast the net. They obeyed. He commanded them to bring some of the fish that he had already commanded to jump into that net. And they obeyed. He commanded that they come and dine. And they obeyed. And then he commanded one of them, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And this man would obey. But then to that one, Jesus told that in his obedience to this life-giving, God-revealing, reconciling, holy Son of God, the cost would be his death to the glory of God. And Peter didn't want to die. And before you get all judgy against Peter, be honest with yourself. None of us wants to die. And none of us would be happy being told that the end of our life is predetermined to be one that will not be easy, quick, and without pain. That our death would be hard, traumatic, stressful, and contain long, extended amounts of other inflicted pain. Lots of pain. And this was the reality that Peter had just been told. By this man that he knew was God. A man and God that he loved that more importantly loved him and had demonstrated that love to him in causing him to be born again, allowing him to see the reality of who he is and who God is. And because he was born again, he loved this man, this God-man, the one that didn't cast him aside because he denied him, didn't punish him for his failure to stand, but would, who would empower him to stand, to be bold, to be part of his ministry of reconciliation, and to stay the course to the end. And this is where we pick up our section of Scripture today. Verses 20 and 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is this going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, Lord what about this man? Jesus had commanded Peter to walk with him, probably right after finishing eating breakfast. The one that he prepared for those men. And he commanded John also to follow along with them, not as an active part of the conversation between him and Peter, but as an eyewitness and as evidenced by our verses today for another reason as well. The reality is that Jesus had called both of these men to the same ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, but they each had different personalities. And they were given different sets of abilities and talents. To Peter, it was given a rock-like steadfastness that he would need in the coming months and years as he led the body of Christ through explosive growth and severe persecution. And to John, it was given a heart for the Lord that then spilled out over onto his people. And it was to John that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother. And it was John that would suffer the longest and hardest of all the apostles, living to see them all die, martyred for the, God, for the God that they loved and for the church that they loved. And both of these men would be used to pen scripture. Both would be authors of epistle letters. Then the first gospel to be penned, the gospel according to Mark, was written from the testimony of Peter. And then the last gospel to be written, the gospel according to John, was from this man, the one that followed behind Jesus and Peter. But only the naive would think that these men were any less human than the rest of us. They both were sinful. And as Peter has shown us before, much like us, Peter has just been recommissioned by Jesus. He had just gone through a pretty hard conversation with Jesus, being asked three times if he loved him. First, he was asked by Jesus, do you love me more than the, than the brothers? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I do. To which Jesus told him, feed my lambs. That's verse 15. And in verse 16, Jesus asked a second time, 
Peter, do you love me? Only now there's no comparison to the love that Peter has for him. And once again, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. After which Jesus commands him, tend my sheep. And then finally, in verse 17, Jesus asks for a third and final time, do you love me? And this time, there is no yes answer. This disciple had been backed into a corner. He, he, he actually th- he thought that he loved Jesus, but there was this nagging thing that was inside him. I betrayed him three times in one night, and mostly because of a little girl. And this reality was one that Jesus had to deal with. And Peter had done what Peter had done before. He gave the Lord the perfect answer. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus, for the last time, recommissions this hurting saint. But as I said, this isn't the first time that Peter pulled the perfect answer out of seemingly nowhere in this gospel. The first time happened back in chapter 6, right after feeding the 5,000. And right after feeding them, Jesus came out with this. He said, truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the Father, the living Father, sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples, many of his disciples, not just followers, but many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, you take offense at this? Then what if you were able to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And he's saying this again to his disciples. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those, who those were who did not believe, and even who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples, again, not hanger honors, disciples. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And I have to tell you, in my heart of hearts, I believe that the answer that they all had was yes. Because that thing that he just said was hard for them to understand as well. But it's Simon Peter who answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And this isn't the only time that Peter, who stepped up, proclaimed Jesus as Lord. We're told of another time that that occurred. That time in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. There Jesus asked his boys, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And again, it's Simon Peter who pipes up and says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. But as we've also seen and had demonstrated to us before, the compulsion that was Peter also shone through and opening his mouth when he should have kept it shut. 
such as the very next event that we're told in the Gospel of Matthew. After Jesus proclaims that Peter to be the, um, blessed by the Father and that on him, on that rock, he will build his church, the very next thing that we're told is this. From that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right after rebuking Peter for trying to rebuke him, Jesus once again renews the obligation of any there of him. Follow me. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is coming or is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And truly I say, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And in verse 22 of our text today, he once again rebukes Peter. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Think about this again. These are the last spoken words of Jesus as told to us in this gospel. The last thing that he leaves us with is basically him scolding one of his disciples. And if we take a step back and consider the entirety of that last chapter, of this last chapter, it's kind of a letdown. I mean, the last eight chapters previous to this have been focused on the events that surrounded the last week of the life of Christ and really primarily the last night that he was betrayed, the last or the day of his passion and then the day of his resurrection. And then we come to this chapter. And on the surface, I got to be honest with you, it's kind of a letdown. Not the climatic ending that I would have ended this account with. It's strange. Kind of a hard chapter to deal with. Having lots of fact given, facts given us, lots of things that we can cause us to wonder at their meaning. I mean, why the fishing expedition? Why the details about Peter jumping into the water? Why the details about the net and the number of fish and Peter doing the Hulk act and pulling it up? Why the details about the fire and the fish and the bread? Why this long walk on the beach and the details about, and the questions being asked and answered? Why would the Lord give us such detail and really not give us the answer as to why it's given to us? Well, he did. The answer to that question can be found in verse 12. The verse where Jesus invites them to come and have breakfast, and there we are told that none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew who it was. Which is just another way of saying the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. We are never meant to get so focused on the details given here that we, dis that we dismiss the revealed. We can wonder at the details, just as we can wonder, and we should wonder, at the detailed manner in which the Lord orchestrates and operates the created universe but never at the expense or to the exclusion of the given or the revealed. And what is revealed to us in this chapter is the amazing love of God for those that are called according to his purpose. And we can overlook this love because we are hard-hearted and hard-headed. We are just like the disciples that are part of this account. And this section of scripture is given to us to reveal the manifestation of the love of God. I went through the amazing truth of the love of God for you from chapter 1. And even if you were thrilled, maybe a bit touched by the reality of what he did for you, 
you weren't overcome. And you should have been. So should have I. But we aren't. We might get a little misty in the eye. Might get a little warm feeling inside. But then that shiny object catches our eyes. And we're right back focused on us. We're just like that dog that loses it completely when they see a squirrel. We're like that fish that can't help themselves and bites at every shiny object that they see. We are these disciples that are at that fire, on that beach. And the ministry of Christ, the life of Christ, the passion of Christ, and the love of Christ is all bound up in us. Both of these men, Peter and John, have been given the same access to the throne room of grace. They have both been made sons of God, both been saved in the same manner, by the same God. They were both equal in being co-heirs in the kingdom with Christ. And they've both been given the same ministry, the same ministry we've been given, the ministry of reconciliation. But they were also given their own personalities and giftings. And the sin that Peter committed here And make no mistake about it, it was sinful to compare himself with another saint in light of the amazing calling that he had just been giving. This same sin dwells in all of us. We desire to compare ourselves with each other. And it's not just happening within us. It happens within churches as well. And we've all been given the same ministry. We've all been given the same spirit and the same sonship. And then we compare. We compare things in this realm as if they are the important things. We focus on the size of a building, the number of people in that building, the seeming influence of that man or woman, as if it was they that are ones that are doing these things. And this is all sin. And we're all stealing, robbing God of the glory to his name. We're told of a time that Jesus was teaching these very men concerning faith, our calling. In the Gospel of Luke, he said this about our calling, what we should expect and how we should act. He said this in the Gospel of Luke. Will any of you who has a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at a table? Isn't that exactly what we think? Man, Sure, I can be a slave of Christ, but uh, I need to be served. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me. And while I eat and drink and afterwards, you will eat and drink. And does he thank that slave because he did what he was commanded? So you all, so you also. When you have done all that you have been commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what is our duty. This is the call of the Christian life. And just like the clear things of this chapter, we desire to gloss over this truth. We'll soften the edges of that truth as much as we can, changing that word slave to servant so that we can feel like we've got a choice in the matter. And in completely ignoring the fact that we were never servants. If we, if, if we are slaves of Christ, then we should rejoice. Because he purchased us off the auction block that we had put ourselves on. When we sold ourselves into slavery of sin. And to our master, who is Satan, Romans seven fourteen, We, in our sinful state, still desire to unshackle ourselves from our master and murder him again and place ourselves on that throne that only belongs to him. Peter would come to understand this reality. Which is why, in his epistles to the church, he begins by elevating himself. What? Well, because in both of his letters that we have is scripture that he penned by him, he begins both of them by introducing himself as an apostle. But that's not the elevated position that he desired them and us to understand him to have. Second Peter begins with this. Simon Peter, a slave 
an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And first Peter begins with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles, exiles in the, of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's verse 1. But those verse numbers aren't original, and that's not a period at the end after Bithynia. It goes on, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter realized that the exalted position that he had been given was not of an apostle. And you, my brother, and me, we should never think that if we've been called as an elder or deacon, that that is the exalted position that we hold. Our exalted position, my exalted position, is the same as every other member of this body of Christ. And that exalted position is slave. Which is the reality that Peter stresses in the opening greeting of his second letter. He's writing as an elder, as an apostle, as an oracle of God. A letter not to underlings, but to those that have obtained a faith of equal standing with his by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing that we are just like these men, that we really are hard-hearted and hard-headed, knowing that we are different, and that we have different personalities, these things are truth. But that doesn't mean that we should or even can overlook biblical infidelity. In the third epistle by John, he writes, I have, something, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephius, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. That's verses 9 through 11. John just called that guy out. He named names. That's not nice. That's not loving. Or what we are told is Christ-like. And from this, we, should, we can and should come to understand that our understanding of what Christ-likeness is must be way off. We need to call people out when they're claiming the name of Christ and living contrary to his clear command, especially, especially if they're leaders within the church because eternity is at stake here. And more important than even the eternal state of the souls of those people who are being led astray, being led like sheep to the slaughter, is the defamation of the character of God. And Peter understood this as well. Because a large portion of the second letter by Peter deals with false teaching and those that go along with it. He ended that letter with this admonition. Verses 17 and 18 in 2 Peter 3. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the end of eternity. Amen. The personalities of these men in our account today are drastically different. And the lives of these, that these men would live are different, are different as well. And the Lord determined this to be the case in order to build his church healthy, well-rounded, the epistles of Peter deal with suffering and persecution. The epistles of John deal with love and right living. But both have the same goal, however. Knowing the Lord, fulfilling the calling on their lives, doing the ministry of reconciliation that they have been given, and being obedient to the one that had called them, purchased them. And the last thing that we are told that Jesus says in this gospel, the last of the gospels is to Peter. And it was, follow me. But that wasn't the thing that caught the attention of the early church. The thing that caught their attention was that what if. Bef 
that he has said just before that. Once again, we're no different than these people were. And they're no different than we are. After hearing of how he was going to die, instead of focusing on the fact that he would die a death that would bring glory to God, Peter instead focuses on the guy who's walking behind him. And we can lose our focus on the important, the eternal when reading scripture. More often than not, that happens when there are people involved in the account. Somehow, when that happens, we shift our focus from the Lord to those people. And Peter had just done the same thing. Just a few days ago, before Jesus died and rose again, before that happened, he, Jesus, was telling Peter and the boys about the coming hour that was upon them now. And here is that conversation. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? For I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. John 13, 36 through 38. And he does this very thing. He denied the Lord, just as the Lord said that he would. But he, like us, missed the the first part of that promise that Jesus gave to Peter. You would follow me. And this is the same promise that Jesus gives to Peter here on this bright, sunny morning. When after revealing the heart, the true heart of the Lord for Peter, and then the heart that Peter had for him, after ensuring that Peter knew that he was still given the same mission and commission as the Son of Man, Jesus promises him, once again, you will stay the course. You will finish well. You will glorify God. And Peter missed all of that, just heard, you're going to die. And then, as if desiring to see if Jesus was being fair with him, he turned and asked Jesus about another one of his sheep, another one of his slaves. And the answer to Peter was lost within, or to many within the early church. Verse 23, we're told there. So the saying spread among the, uh, abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but only if he It is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? That John outlived the rest of the disciples may have been the catalyst to them losing focus on the absolute assuredness of Jesus concerning Peter finishing well. I mean, after all, when men are dying all around you because of their faith, and this one guy seems always to remain, it's not impossible to understand why they thought this. But John, however, knew that they had lost focus. And more important, that they had lost the intent and confidence that we are supposed to have from these events. Which is why he, John the Apostle, the disciple that Jesus loved, John the Revelator, ends this gospel with an eyewitness testimony and then a summation of the entire gospel, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every, one the, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Verse, verse 24, and the reason for him at the end of his gospel to reveal who it was who wrote it. John desired Jesus to be elevated. He desired us to love Jesus, to be enthralled with him as he was. He, like the Apostle Paul, had one desire for us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3, 17-19. This was the crux of the epistle that John wrote. Listen to the confidence that he desires you to have because of Christ. First John 
chapter two, chapter 2, verses 24 through 29. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Do you hear that confidence? Whoever confesses the Father, or the Son has, has the Father. And this is what made it possible for Peter to die well. Not his strength, not his moral character. It's Christ. If you have been given him, then you have been given the Father. And they have you. And let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. This is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. And this promise is not a maybe. It's not a might. It's not a, well, let's just wait and see. This is his word. This is an absolute that you can take to the bank and deposit. We have been given eternal life. And it's ours now. And it will be forever. No matter how you feel at this moment. If you are his, he will hold you fast. And John continued his assurance of this fact in verses 26 through 29 of 1 John 2. He said, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Jesus is our assurance of salvation. Not us. It is in his goodness that any and all goodness within us emulates, emulates from. He is the assurance that John desires us to know, to rest in, to come to love as he did, which is why he ended chapter 20 in the way he did. He knew that in Jesus was life. And outside of him is merely existence. And this is the message that God desires you to know. This is the love that he desires you to understand. The one that he has for you. If you are one of his children. But are you one of his? Have you had your heart regenerated to know that God is love? That he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That you are darkness that you have sinned against this God. Have you repented? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord? Yes? Then rejoice. You are his. And don't take my word on this. Don't take my word as truth. Hear God. Listen to him. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 20, verses 30 and 31. And, and hear Jesus about this life. He said, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. John 10, 10. And this life, the one that is life, has given us life then gives us the means of knowing this life. He said in John 5, 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Come to Christ. Find him in the word. And embrace your life. This is the confidence that you are to have in the life-giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. But how can I be sure, you wonder? Well, Jesus said, 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But he's speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And what was that word that Jesus spoke? He spoke life. First to creation, and then more specifically, and within that creation, he spoke once again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Saints, this is a summation of this gospel. And this is a summation of our life in Christ. It's never about our life. It's always been about finding us in Christ. Because he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand on majesty on high, Hebrews 1, 3. And since this is true, since he upholds the universe just by the power of his word, since he has made the purification for our sins and has sat down, we can and should know that his effective calling is just that. It's effective. And that calling is not of us. It's not of our will, not of our flesh, and not of our desires from our fickle hearts. It's all of and for and even through him. And we can and should rest assured in this fact. He will be glorified in you. He was in Peter, just as he was in John. This is his gospel. It is his. He is the master and commander. You will finish well. Not because of you, but because of him. This is the meaning of John chapter 21. It's not about the disciples. It's all about him. And saints, it's not about you. If you were relying on you, you're doomed. He will hold you fast. Lord, I, I don't know. I, 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 feel, I, I feel cowardly. I, I don't like opening my mouth and talking about you. I feel like I'm going to deny you. He will hold you fast. If you are his, you are to have that confidence that you will finish your race well. And he will be glorified in you. Let's pray.